welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we, uh, we thank you so much for your word, and we come here, I come here, in the confidence that you will speak and that your spirit will come and move among us and change us. And we just thank, Lord, of the promise in Ezekiel 36. You promised three things there to us. You promised that you would cleanse us of idols. You promised that you would give us new hearts that pump alive for you. And you promised that you'd fill us with your spirit. And so we come before you, Lord, as we open this word, calling upon you to fulfill those promises afresh in our lives today as we get into your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Romans 4. And you know, one of the amazing things about this book, guys, is its unity. Have you guys ever read through the whole Bible? The unity of the Bible is a tremendously amazing thing, especially when you figure that it's got 66 books written by 40 different authors over like 1,600 years. That's crazy they would have unity. Have you guys ever tried to do like a group project at school? Okay. But this is worse, right? Because of the diversity of people. I mean, you have people that have so little in common. You have authors that were shepherds and kings and farmers and warriors and bureaucrats and priests and prophets and fishermen and one physician, okay? And you're going to create a book that has unity. It's crazy. It's not something that would work that way, especially if you don't get to meet with a lot of those people, right? This occurred over a 1,600-year period that more and more was added to this book, and it has this amazing internal unity, even though it was written in multiple cultures, multiple continents, multiple languages, and multiple genres. This should not work, This should not have the internal unity that it has. It's amazing, guys. 40 different authors over a 1,600-year period. It's got a profound unity, though. It's it's got this one story, and it's a historical story, things that actually happen. It's a historical story that has all these rich foreshadowings and and fulfillments. It's got all these kind of Easter eggs hidden in it that after you've read it maybe a dozen times, you start to notice all these little things that are hidden within it that get fulfilled later. The unity of this book is incredible. The only way this could happen is if there's a pre-planned writing by one divine author. That's how this book works. Or to put it another way, you can always tell, guys, when a sequel has been planned later and just tacked on, okay? And that's not what we have with the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know, you can always tell the difference between carefully pre-planned sequels like Lord of the Rings versus like uh, Home Alone 2, Okay, Home Alone 2 was not pre-planned. Home Alone 1 went well, and then they were like, oh, he gets left behind again, you know? That's cheap. That doesn't really fit. It's clear that they did not plan to do a whole series of Home Alone movies. Whereas when you look at scripture, it's clearly pre-planned. And that's the problem, guys, with things like Islam and Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness faith, is that they're clearly tacked on to the scriptural story. You know, you have the Old Testament story, and there's something being tacked on that clearly does not fit. It clearly was not written by the same author. It doesn't show the same master's touch. And that's true, of course, of Judaism. Judaism without Jesus is an incomplete story, isn't it? It's like a Netflix series that got canceled, right? We're in the Old Testament, and it's promising all these things, and just when the story's getting good, it doesn't get renewed for a second season, Right? That's what Judaism seems like. It's it's all these ends that are left untied. But when we look at the Old Testament, the New Testament, we see something that fits together perfectly and completes one narrative that was clearly written beforehand by God. 
And Paul wants to show that that's true of his teaching of justification by faith. He wants to show that sinners being saved by a gift righteousness through faith was the story all along. It was what was going on all along. And the evidence he's going to give here in Romans 4 is the life of Abraham. He's going to show from the life of Abraham that God has always saved people the same way through the Messiah. Abraham's a great place to look because Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. Uh, God appeared to him about 2000 BC, calls him out of Ur. Ur is, a, by the way, the Pope was there this week, right, in Ur in Iraq. He called him out of Ur about 2000 BC. God promises Abraham to make him a great nation, to give his descendants the promised land. Abraham was really the first Jew, right? I mean, he's the beginning of the chosen people. One would assume that however Abraham got right with God would be the way to do it, okay? That's why he picks Abraham. He goes, you know, we know Abraham was right with God. The Bible tells us that. How did it happen? When did it happen? That's what Paul's doing here in Romans 4. And there's plenty of biographical information. I mean, you look at like Genesis 12 through 24 is all Abraham's life. We should be able to look at the data and go, okay, when was he made right before God and how did it happen? So Paul, in, in Romans 4, he's saying, you know, let's just look at the data. Let's look at the timeline of Abraham's life and figure out when was he made righteous? What happened right beforehand that made Abraham righteous with God? Was it right after he was circumcised, Genesis 17? Was it right after he offered his son Isaac, Genesis 22? What does the scripture say? So let's take a look at it. Verse 1, Romans 4. And it is really important that you look at it. This is no fun unless you're actually looking at it because it's expository. And I go, hey, look at that, look at that. And you're not looking at it. So please look at it. Romans 4, what does it say? Verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That last part is a quote of Genesis 15, 6. When was Abraham declared righteous before God? It was not after, right after he was circumcised. So we know that circumcision and law keeping aren't the way to righteousness before God. And it wasn't right after he offered it. He was willing to offer his son Isaac on the mountain. So we know it's not by acts of obedience like that. When was he declared righteous? As soon as he believed. The moment he believed. That's what we see in verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was justified or made right before God. By faith, not by works. It was not by Abraham's works. It was by his faith. One thing to kind of point out by this when we say we're, that we're saved by faith, one mistake we can make is thinking that our faith is our righteousness, that somehow your believing earns you salvation with God. That's not the case. The way faith works is it connects you with Jesus, who is your righteousness. So it isn't like you have a certain level of faith, and when you get to a certain level, then you're righteous before God, and you've earned your salvation. No, faith is the empty hand that reaches out and receives the gift of righteousness in Christ. And that's important because our faith is up and down all the time. And if we were relying on the quality or level of our faith to, to feel accepted before God, there's a lot of times when you think, well, I don't really believe enough. It's not about believing enough. It's about believing at all. It's about trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation. It's an empty hand that receives the gift of salvation. And so Abraham was saved just like us through faith. What I want to look at in this text uh, tonight is I want to look at four things that this teaches us about faith. So if Abraham's life, relationship with God, is just like ours, and it's through faith, what does this text teach us about that faith? First thing it teaches us is by faith we receive a credited righteousness. 
Um, Paul makes this point here in verse 4. He, he makes the point that it's, it's obvious that Abraham was given his righteousness as a gift because Genesis uses the word counted or credited for the righteousness he got. And if he earned that, it's just not the right word. Counted or credited is not the right word if he earned it. Look at verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but what is due. Put it this way. You're like boss on, on payday. Your boss doesn't hand you a paycheck and say, hey, I got you a little something. Okay, I got you a little gift. You don't have to, you know, make a big deal of it, but I got you this. You'd be like, what do you mean you got me this? I worked for it. <laughs> I worked for this. You owe me this, right? Or he doesn't say like, hey, I'm going to credit you some hours. Let's just call it 40 hours and we'll pay you for that. I'm going to credit that to you, okay? You'd be like, what do you mean credit it to me? I worked 40 hours. You owe this to me. Don't act like you're doing me a favor. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying that you were owed it when you worked for it, but not so with the gospel. The gospel is a gift of righteousness. It's a righteousness you didn't earn. It's counted or credited to you as a gift. It's a present, not a paycheck. All religions will basically see salvation as a paycheck. In the gospel, it's, it's a present. It's a gift. It's a gift of righteousness. Take a look at verses 5 through 8. You're going to see that in those passages, that righteousness actually has two different parts to it. There's two things that are counted. Now, when I read verses 5 through 8, look for the word counted, or yours might say credited, to look for the two parts of this righteousness. Look at verse 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. Did you notice the two types of counting there? There's something God counts and there's something he doesn't count in this passage. It's really cool. So if you look at verse five, he counts you righteous in Jesus. And then if you look at verse eight, he doesn't count your sin against you. So he counts Jesus's righteousness for you and then he doesn't count your sin against you. Justification has two parts. Have you guys ever heard someone say, and I think it's helpful, but I don't think it's totally helpful, so I don't want to pick on it. But have you guys heard people say, justification means just as if I never sinned? You guys ever heard that? Okay, it's a common thing, because they sound alike, right? Justification, just as if I never sinned, it's kind of a neat thing. Okay, it's nice. But the problem is with it is it only includes half of justification, because justification isn't just your sin not being counted against you, verse 8, but it's also Jesus' righteousness being counted for you. And it's actually really important that you receive the benefit of both. The theological term for this is double imputation, double counting. Your sin was counted as Jesus's, and Jesus' righteousness was counted as yours. Both are true in justification. And this is huge. This is super important. I'll prove it to you. So the Book of Common Prayer has this confession that's really beautiful, and it says, it confesses the things we've done and the things that we've left undone. Have you ever heard that? You know, there's the things we've done and the things we've left undone. And it's beautiful because that's our problem, right? It's the things we've done and the things we've left undone. Double imputation takes care of both. Your sin was imputed to Jesus. It takes care of the things you've done. Jesus' righteousness is imputed to you, takes care of the things you've left undone. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? This is really important, guys. It's really important because you don't want to just see salvation as you have a blank slate, something to build upon. You know, it took away your debt with God, but now you need to kind of 
make something of yourself, you know? Make something of yourself so you can really be acceptable before God, right? It gives you a blank slate, something to build on. That's not what justification does. It not only removes all your debt, but it gives you all of Jesus' righteousness. That's not something to build on, okay? It's not like, you know, God's going to be like, man, I really thought my own son's righteousness in his earthly life was amazing, but then you added this, right? Like, God doesn't say that, right? Jesus' righteousness is everything, okay? We don't have a righteousness apart from his. Martin Luther called this thing where your sin goes to Jesus and Jesus' righteousness goes to you. He called it the great exchange. And he talked about it as like, like banking. So imagine a column. It's got your name on it and all your sin. You're in this massive debt before God, right? And then there's Jesus' column, and he's got massive righteousness. What happened when you came to faith in Jesus Christ is just that the names got switched. Before your life even changed one bit, the names were switched. Jesus got all your sin, pays for it on the cross. You get all of Jesus' righteousness. It's huge. And the gift of salvation is way bigger than we imagine. So by faith, we got a credited righteousness. Secondly, by faith, we got an instantaneous righteousness. Before a single thing changed in your life, you were fully righteous in Jesus. A lot of times people think, you know, you'll talk to people when we were doing evangelism at MSJC, you know, young people would say stuff like, you know, I need to get, I know I need to get my life right before God. And what they meant is I need to start doing the right things for a while and then I can come to God. And it was like, no, it's instantaneous righteousness. Luther had a phrase for this in Latin. It was limial justice et precator, which means at the same time righteous and sinner. Isn't that beautiful? That we're at the same time both righteous and sinner. God sees us as righteous, and then we all see you as a sinner, right? Like, we know who you really are. <laughs> we, we see your sin. Your family sees your sin. The people around you see your sin. Jesus in Christ sees you as, as righteous as Jesus. It's amazing. And that's where that shocking term comes in verse 5. Take a look at it. He says, to the one who does not work but believes in him who, what? Justifies the ungodly. Isn't that intense? He justifies the ungodly. And realize that in the context here, he's kind of low-key calling Abraham ungodly. That's what he's talking about in this particular situation. He justifies the ungodly. By faith, we receive an instantaneous righteousness. If you're not a Christian tonight, that's what you're being offered. You're being offered that you would turn from your sin, you would trust in Jesus, and you would receive an instantaneous righteousness that God would, from now on forever, treat you as righteous as Jesus. And the good news for you guys who are Christians is you already had this. You might have thought you only had half of this, but you actually have both parts of this. It's amazing. It's good news. Third thing, by faith we receive a new identity and inheritance. We don't just get a new status with God, righteous, but we also get a, a new identity and a new inheritance. If you look at verses 9 through 12, what it's intending to answer is, who are Abraham's kids? Who are Abraham's real kids? And who are Abraham's heirs? Like, who, who receives the promises made to Abraham? Okay? It's a little wordy, so I want to just tell you ahead of time what it's about. It's about that. And the, and the hearers, the, Paul's hearers would have thought, well, of course, it's the Jews. It's the circumcised. It's those who keep the law. Those are the true heirs of Abraham. Those are his real kids. But Paul's got a surprise here for him. Look at verse 9. Is this blessing then only to the circumcised or also to the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. 
He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, and so the righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but walk in the footsteps of faith of our father Abraham that he had before he was circumcised. So what Paul's saying there is that that Abraham is actually an example of both a Gentile and a Jewish believer. It's kind of an interesting case he makes, and it totally makes sense. This is the thing he says. He says, before Abraham was the first circumcised believer, Genesis 17, he was the first uncircumcised believer. We don't think of Abraham that way. Before Abraham was the first Jewish believer, he was a Gentile believer, right? Because Abraham wasn't circumcised. He wasn't law-keeping. He wasn't any of these things. He's like pulled out of, you know, we think, Ur, Iraq, okay? Strange, not what you normally think of. Pulled out of there, pulled out of a place where they practice all kinds of paganism. Follows God, trusts in God. He believes. He's a Gentile believer at that point. I mean, it's not really those categories at that point yet. But he can be both the father of all believing Gentiles and all believing Jews. Isn't that amazing? He's the father of both. And so if you trust in Jesus the Messiah like Abraham did, then you're a real child of Abraham and you're an heir of all the promises made to him. Can you guys imagine, okay, keep in mind, the Roman church, it's divided, right? You've got natural enemies. You made a church out of people that didn't normally get along at all, Jews and Gentiles, natural enemies. Can you imagine the unity they would have in really believing that? That not only did they have one God, but they had one gospel, and they actually had one earthly father, Abraham. That all of a sudden these people that trust in the Messiah Jesus become actual sons and daughters of Abraham. So now they have like all this in common. Isn't that amazing? And that's what Paul's trying to do with this letter is he wants to unite the church around the gospel for the purpose of mission. And this would do it huge. You guys, and I, I don't know how much this means to you. It might not mean a lot to you now, but it'll probably mean more to you later. Hopefully it means a lot to you now. Okay, I'll just say what it is. You're truly a child of Abraham as much as Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Deborah and Naomi and Esther. Those are your people. Isn't that amazing? Like when you read the Old Testament, those are your people. You're a child of Abraham by faith. That's the way God sees you, which is the most important thing, right? I would just think, like, how many divisions in our culture would that heal if we really saw that, like at least within the church, amongst believers, no matter what race, what background, whatever, that we were in one actual family under, under Abraham, in one family. It reminds me of a song. Does it remind you of a song? The great covenantal hymn. The great covenantal hymn that goes, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. And then there's like right foot, left foot. How does that go? What's that part? Right arm, left arm. So you got to move your body too. Okay. Which we're probably not going to do that part. But uh, isn't that amazing? That's actually a very true song. And if we'd believe it, it would really do amazing things for us as a community. You're truly a child of Abraham and an heir of the promises made to him. Look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world, we'll come back to that, that's really cool, did not come through law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are the heirs, faith is null and the promise void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. 
That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise might rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only in the adherents of the law, but also to the ones who share in the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the, the things that do not exist. What he's saying there is he's saying that receiving the promises made to Abraham had to come by faith. It has to come by grace because if it came through law, no one measures up. No one measures up. Jew, Gentile, no one measures up. That's kind of what Paul has been developing this whole time. It has to come through grace, through faith. And that's the way it always has from all throughout the Old Testament, all through the New including today, it's by grace through faith that we receive the promise. And so you might ask, like, well, okay, what are the promises? You know, a lot of times we talk about the promises of God, they're not real clear. What are they? Would you guys remember what he promised Abraham? The most important promises, he promised to be his God, which is amazing, okay? So he promised him himself. He's like, the best thing you could have is me, and I'm going to give you me, okay? He promised to be his God. He promised to give him a land, the land of Canaan. He got to see it, but he never really got to inherit it during his lifetime. He promised to give him a people, and that was a big deal because he was, they were barren. They hadn't had any children. At that point, like 75 years old, then 85, then 95, then 99, no children, okay? But he was promised that all these children are going to come from this nation. And we see that promise get fulfilled, right? We see it fulfilled through Genesis. We see it fulfilled through Moses and through Joshua, um, the, the Jewish people form. They get a land. All these things are happening. But guys, here's the thing. In the Abrahamic covenant, from the beginning, God had in mind something much more global than that. And that thing he had in mind was all of you who believe. He had in mind a greater promised land. Did you guys notice in verse 13? Do you think that would have surprised Abraham? For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, he'd be like, wait, there's more. You know, like he was shown a little piece of land. What does this passage say? The, the Abrahamic covenant was actually all about having the entire world. The entire world is the inheritance. God will give Abraham and his children not just a patch of land, Canaan, but the whole world. Guys, the true promised land is in Revelation 21 and 22, and it's the entire world made new. He's going to make this whole place new. Jesus is going to reign here. He's going to make all things new. He's going to remove all sin, all disease, all suffering. And that is the true promised land of which Canaan was a picture God promises big. He delivers bigger. I don't think Abraham had a sense that it was going to be like, oh, this is much bigger than I remember, you know? And look at all these oceans and stuff, you know? Like, look at all these things. And then there was a greater people. Look at verse 17. It says, I've made you a father of many nations. Remember how Abraham, remember how the Lord took Abraham outside and he showed him the sky and all the stars and he said, if you could count all these, you could count all your descendants. Guys, we are those descendants. We are a part of those descendants, both Jew and Gentile. In Revelation 7, it speaks of Abraham's massive global family that we're a part of. This is in Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation and all tribes and people and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Isn't that amazing? Those are his children. We're a part of that. And all these promises, guys, were earned not through Abraham's obedience, not through our obedience, but the obedience of Jesus Christ, the true son of Abraham, the greater Isaac, the son that was really offered on the mountain for our sins. 
And so the last thing, the last thing to see about this faith. The last thing to see about this faith, guys, is that the faith that saves us changes us. The faith that saves us changes us. It makes us more and more obedient to God. That faith doesn't just connect us to our righteousness, which is Jesus, but inside of us changes us and makes us more and more obedient to God over time. And that makes sense, right? It makes sense because faith is trust, right? Just like you have faith in people that are faithful and you trust in people that are trustworthy, we've put our trust and our faith in Jesus Christ. We've put our trust in God. And the more that you trust God, of course, the more you're going to do what he says, right? The more you're going to do what he says. The more you, you trust him, have faith in him, the more when he says do this, you're going to do it, right? Because you're going to trust that he knows best and he's wise and he's good. The same faith that saves us also changes us. It, it makes us follow God more faithfully. And we see that in the life of Abraham. Take a look at this, verse 18. You got to see this. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. And as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No belief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So Abraham's saving faith also made a real difference in the way he lived, right? Did you notice anything fishy about those verses, though? Anything? They seem a little odd to you? I think we have to admit that Abraham's life sounds a lot better in Romans than it does in Genesis. Would you agree? Would you think, like, that's kind of glossed, <laughs> you know? You read that, and you're like, that doesn't have any of the messy parts in it. It was interesting. And you know what's interesting? It's a really gracious portrayal. And the same thing happens in Hebrews 11. All these people's faith lives, and it's like they're made out to not have any flaws. And then Peter does it in 2 Peter. So I don't think this is an accident. I, there's no accidents in the Word of God. I, I don't think that Paul's trying to pull a fast one. We all know the story. The Jews all knew the stories, right? What's going on here? I think that what's going on here is we're seeing how God views his people's lives. When he sees his kids' lives, he sees them through the lens of grace. Amen? Super cool. So in Genesis, we see Abraham really struggled, right? He really struggled to trust and obey God. And we know the reason why he really struggled. The underlying reason why we sin, the underlying reason why we don't obey God is always unbelief, right? In the moment that we sin, it's always because we didn't trust God enough to obey him. Amen? Isn't that true in your own life? Abraham's life was a mixed bag like ours. I mean, think about the story. So Genesis 12, Abraham is called out of Ur by God. Abraham responds in faith, right? He leaves, which is amazing. He's 75. This is a terrible time to start over, okay? So he leaves, and he, he believes everything. And then what happens? A little later in the same chapter, he lies about Sarah being his sister in Egypt, right? He sins, unbelief. He had unbelief almost immediately. Chapter 15, God promises Abraham many descendants, as many as the stars. Abraham believes, right? And he trusts. And it's counted as righteousness. And then what happens? Next chapter, he decides that sex with Hagar would be the best way to get these descendants that he was promised through Sarah. God comes back. He promises Abraham again. He gives him the sign of circumcision. Abraham believes and circumcises himself at 99, which is crazy because he probably doesn't have good eyesight and probably has shaky hands, okay? And probably no sharp knives. So he believes, right? Right? circumcised himself. And then what happens? 
Almost immediately, he lies again about Sarah being his sister to Abimelech. It's like there's a back and forth. It sounds like our lives, right? Abraham struggled to trust God enough to obey him, just like we do. But notice something in the story. It's going somewhere, right? It's going somewhere. Abraham's faith is growing. He's learning to trust God more and more, just like you. He's learning to trust God more and more. It's going somewhere. It's not just a constant cycle. It's going somewhere. He's learning to trust God more and more. He's learning to follow more faithfully so that when God fulfills his promise to Abraham and Sarah and gives them the son in Genesis 21, Abraham's ready to pass the ultimate test, the offering of his son Isaac back to God. Now, of course, God doesn't require him to do that. He stops him. But Abraham was willing because his faith was going somewhere. His faith was actually transforming him. Not perfectly, but truly. Abraham learned over time to stop trusting in his circumstances, like their old bodies. You know, I love that. His, his own body, which was as good as dead because he was about 100. He didn't trust in his circumstances. He, he learned to put his trust in God. And I love verse 21. It says, he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Abraham saw God come through on promises again and again, and his faith built up over time so that he could pass more and more tests. His faith, his trust in God grew, and his obedience grew. And if you guys are a Christian tonight, you belong to God just like Abraham. You have a story just like Abraham had with God. You guys have a relationship together. You have a relationship with God just like Abraham. And I just want to challenge you guys tonight. Give your whole self to that relationship. Wouldn't it make sense that if you were given a gift relationship with God that you might just, I don't know, give your whole self to it? Maybe make that the priority. Maybe not make that our 10th thing, right? This is huge. We've got a relationship with God. Like, let's give it a priority. And the priority would be to really get to know God. Like through his word, through prayer, through all sorts of things, through fellowship in the church. We can really get to know God so that we would really trust him, so that we would really obey him. Like that would be the best thing to give our lives to, wouldn't it? That's what we've been given. That's a gift we've been given, just like Abraham was. And guys, you have even more reason to trust God than Abraham had. I mean, they had a history, and he saw God again and again fulfill his promises. But you have even more of a reason to believe God because you've seen him come through on his biggest promise, the offering of his own son, Jesus Christ. Take a look at verse 24. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You've seen him come through on the biggest possible promise. It was really cool. I was thinking about Abraham's faithfulness to God and God's faithfulness to us. And I was just thinking about this. Abraham's faithfulness to God was shown in his willingness to offer his only son, right? Abraham's faithfulness to God was shown in his willingness to offer his one and only son. God's faithfulness to us has been shown that he actually did offer his one and only son for us. He's proven his faithfulness to us. Amen? If God would do that for us, we can trust him wherever we're at. He's shown himself to be trustworthy. Before we take communion, I just want to ask you guys, what hard obedience is God calling you to? There would be very few of you here that God isn't calling you right now to a hard obedience. What hard obedience is he calling you to? Perhaps it's to remain joyful in the midst of physical illness and pain. That's one of the worst trials, is just be in pain constantly. Perhaps that's the hard obedience that God is calling you to. Perhaps 
It's to keep loving and forgiving somebody very difficult in your life. And they might be very close to you. Perhaps it's to persist in killing some enslaving sin or addiction. That's exhausting, right? It's exhausting when that same temptation, that same sin keeps knocking at your door over and over again. And you're called to persist in killing it, putting it to death, right? Over and over again. Perhaps it's persevering in in love in a difficult marriage. God will provide everything you need. Romans 8, 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Hear the logic of that sentence? Let me read it again. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He'll be there for us. If he was going to be stingy or ditch you, he would have done it then. He'll be there for you. Let's pray. Father, we confess with the Book of Common Prayer that we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We've followed too much in our own devices and desires of our own hearts. We've offended your holy law. We have left undone things that ought to be done, and we've done things that certainly ought not to have been done. There is no health in us apart from you. But we're so comforted and so encouraged that your son has taken the blame for what we've done. And with his perfect life, he has done all the things we left undone. And we receive that gift tonight. Pray for anybody here that has not truly trusted in your son, Jesus Christ, that they just wouldn't leave this place without calling out. Calling out to you and just asking for it. It's a gift. We just turn from our sin and reach out and take hold of the gift of perfect righteousness and salvation in Jesus Christ. And then to be started in this whole new life, this adventure like Abraham had, being called out of Ur and wandering around and learning how to trust you. We get the gift of that. We get the gift of your Holy Spirit to empower and transform us. We just pray, Lord, for all of us that we would value that above all else. We thank you for feeding us in your word. We pray that you'd feed us with the food from your table as we take the Lord's Supper. We pray that it would be something truly transformative to us, that it would feed us and renew us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Just like circumcision was a sign in the, in the Old Testament, it was a sign and seal of God's promise. God's given us physical symbols in the New Covenant, and their baptism in the Lord's Supper. And we take the Lord's Supper every week. If you've not been baptized and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, please let us know. We'd love to set that up for you as well to celebrate that. But God gave us these physical reminders of his love. He knew that we needed them. It's something that we can hold and put in our mouths and something we could do as a reminder of how he loves us. If you, like Abraham, are trusting in God's grace, we invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us. The, the bread represents the body of God's only son, Jesus Christ the body that was offered on the cross for you. The cup represents his blood, that when he shed his blood for your sin and mine, he left no sin uncovered. Don't you love in that passage when it says that David said, talked about the blessings of those whose sins are covered? They don't get uncovered, they just get covered with the blood of Jesus Christ. As we take this tonight, we're also looking forward to God strengthening us. As we take this 
And we see this and we physically hold it and taste it. It's a reminder that in real space-time, in a, a real mountain, uh, in a real cross, that in a real body, Jesus Christ really took away our sins in history. And as we take this cup, we remember that his blood really flowed from his veins and that that is enough to remove all our sin. We also feed. Um, we believe that the Holy Spirit actually feeds us with the real presence of Christ by the Holy Spirit as we take this. So this is a way to feed as well. Let's take it together. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, to preserve you body and soul into everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts with thanksgiving. Let's take it together. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, to preserve you body and soul into everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you and be thankful. Let's take it together. Father, we just pray that we would never forget your immense goodness, that you loved us from eternity past. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ, we can be confident that you chose us before the foundation of the world, that you sought us, that you paid the debt, that you awakened us, We thank you, Jesus Christ, that you willingly offered yourself. You were not like Isaac, confused and not knowing what was going on. You knew exactly what you were doing, and you offered yourself for us, for our sin. We just pray, Lord, that we would never forget your immense goodness to us. Holy Spirit, we thank you that when we had no interest in you, you awakened our hope, you opened our eyes, you gave us a desire to know you and that even now you keep us believing every second of every day. We believe, Holy Spirit, that without your work we would be doomed in a second, but you hold us. We thank you for that. We pray that you would help us now to worship you with our whole hearts and to love your people with all the affections we should. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.